Okay, y'all, open your Bibles to Ephesians. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 1. I think this might be our last time in this 1 through 14, in this one long, monstrous Greek sentence, right? Uh, so I've never had the flu. I can't say never anymore now. <laughs> and I think, like, if there was a bucket list, I'm glad I'm finally going to check that one off my uh, bucket list. Natalie, who's uh, my primary care physician who sits over here, uh, I'd will not have to beg me to take a flu shot next year. I will be the first one to sign up. I will get the flu app, the flu reminder shot app. I will get whatever is needed and necessary so that I do not get whatever this thing was that comes from the pit of hell called the flu. What was it like? What was it like to have the flu, you asked me? Jeff, Jeff, what was it like to have the flu for your first time? What was it like? What was it like to be sick? I don't ever get sick either. And Here's what it's like. I have a friend named Ronnie Rowe. He's a pastor, and he called me because he heard I had the flu, and I couldn't go to Presbytery this weekend, and he said, Jeff, you know that there are two kinds of flu, and I go, no, what are the two kinds of flu? He says, you know, there's the kind of flu that you get, and you're, you're afraid you're going to die, and I said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's crazy, and he goes, yeah, and then there's another kind of flu, though, that you get that you're afraid you're not. I got the second one. <laughs> Misery is a good word to describe it. Another one comes from Princess Bride when the character played by Billy Crystal. You remember that? That was uh, Miracle Max tells his wife Valerie. You remember that conversation? It's a really funny conversation about Wesley, Prince Wesley, you know. Um, he said he was, what was, Rice told me, it's not half dead. It was almost dead or was it mostly dead? Mostly dead. Isn't that right? He's only mostly dead. Yes, that could describe the flu pretty doggone well. He's mostly dead. But on a more serious note, I would say this. I, am, I have so much more gratitude for health. I mean, how often <laughs> I take my health for granted all the time. I take my physical health and my physical strength granted for all the time. Well, no longer, people. No longer. There is a much more expansive gratitude in my soul for health and for physical strength. Uh, also, I think this, I think there's been a much more more room has been created com for compassion on people who are sick. So I'm here to tell you if, you, if you do get sick and you are shut in for a while, uh, I'll be there for you. That is, I'll tell you, I am the absolute worst patient, I think, on the planet. My wife's mad that I'm even preaching today. I even worked out this. I mean, stupid things like, what is wrong with this guy, right? I refuse to acknowledge that I get sick. Refuse. Just refuse. I, I pretend like it's just death is right there and it, it really doesn't matter. But I have a greater compassion for those who do. So if you do get shut in for a while, I'm coming for you. I will be there. All right, Ephesians. Here's what we're going to do. There's an underlying text. There's a subtext in this passage that we're going to look at, and it's called being a spiritual orphan. So what is a spiritual orphan? I'm going to define it for us. Then we're going to look at some characteristics of it, and then we're going to look at how this text addresses it. That's kind of the plan. So what is a spiritual orphan? Here's what a spiritual orphan is. A spiritual orphan is a child of God, but actually thinks, feels, relates, and lives like they're not. Do you hear that? So like a spiritual orphan is an actual child of God. It's a Christian, a, a child of God, but in the thinking and in the feeling and in the relating and your relationships and the way you live and 
handle life, there's this functional sense that you're not. So what would a functional spiritual orphan look like? Well, it would look like, one, a spiritual orphan just feels incredibly alone. Incredibly alone. You're on your own to do life. You're on your own to do heartache. You're on your own to do hardship. You're on your own to do a romantic relationship. And then you're on your own to deal with it when it breaks up. You're on your own to do with marriage. You're on your own to, to do children if you have children. You're on your own to do school and to handle the jerk on the playground. You're on your own at your work. You're on your own when you suffer. You're on your own when you're sick. You're on your own. You feel so alone. And you're also on your own to do a relationship with God. And when that happens, there's this real sense of little intimacy with God because your doing is just never good enough. You can never connect enough. You can never maintain the connection. You cannot generate the spark. You can't seem to get God to like you. And then when you try to look for evidence that he loves you and accepts you and you look at your circumstances and they're going to tell you he doesn't. I mean, every once in a while you have a good day, right? And when you have that good day, you have a sense of, okay, he must like me, but we have a bad day and you have a sense that he doesn't like you. There's just not a sense that he's for you and with you. A spiritual orphan feels that way. A spiritual orphan is also performance-driven. Here's this all the time, in the head, or from others, or at work, or just some subtext that's always there, like, be enough, <laughs> do enough, be better, do better, be perfect, be a great mom, be a great dad, be capable, be humble. Be loving. Look good. Be right. Be safe. Be secure. <laughs> oh, my word. Be in control. A performance-driven life lives in this continuum and lives in this continuum between success and failure all the time. It can happen in a, a conversation. You can move from success to failure. You're in a continuum of affirmation and condemnation all the time. You're in a continuum between having approval and disapproval all the time. You're in the sense of being loved and rejected all the time, and it can change on a dime. Someone can say something and you're affirmed. Someone can say something and you're condemned. You can go about your work and you can see that you're doing really, really well and you feel great, and then you get really, really self-conscious when everybody's looking at you and the ball's put on the tee and you got to swing, and you feel incredibly the opposite. You get an email and you're on the top of the world. You get another email and now you're down in the trenches. And life is this bipolar existence. A performance-driven life is also an emotional life that's just completely filled with exhaustion and anxiety and discouragement. A spiritual orphan, though, is not only performance-driven and it's also rebellious. There's this real sense of resisting authority that's in a spiritual orphan. The greatest fear for an orphan is like being controlled. And so there's a real sense of defensiveness and there's a strong willedness and there's this 
unteachability and there's this lack of being a good teammate. This is a, a critical, you become critical and you're complaining and you're divisive and you become what I call a, a blues brother. You're on a mission from God. <laughs> You've got the mission, right? Nobody else has the mission. You're right. You know what it is. You're a church on, you're on a mission from God. God's given you a mission. You're on a mission from God and your family because you know what needs to happen and nobody will listen to you. A spiritual orphan also has little faith, but loads of fears. Loads of fears. Little prayer, but lots of fear. Little reading the Bible, but lots of fears. Little doing church, but lots of fears. Little loving and serving others, but lots of fears. Little generosity, loads bucket loads of fears, little reaching and renewing people, but lots and loads of fears. And so then we get to a passage in Ephesians, and we're looking at really 11 through 14. That's our section today. And you know what this passage does? This passage just specializes. This passage comes into an orphan, and it says, you're a child. Here's who I say you are. And so orphans, when they get to Ephesians 11 through 14, turn into sons and daughters of God. Functionally, experientially, the way we think and the way we feel and the way we relate and the way we live. What a powerful passage. Are you ready to read it? <laughs> Let's stand for the hearing of God's Word. Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated, y'all. So Lord, would you shine on the page? Would you, Holy Spirit, fill us with your spirit, grant clarity to the mind, realness to the heart, bring home the wonders of these words we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a spiritual orphan, the first way a spiritual orphan feels is alone, right? That's what we just looked at. So I want you to look at verse 11 and 14. This is the section we're looking at. There's a word found in verse 11. There's a word found in verse 14. Notice that it's a nice bookend. And so wherever you find a bookend in a Pauline writing, you know that that bookend is actually telling you what this all means in between it. So there's the point. So I want you to find the common word. What is it? Did you find it? Inheritance. Good. Fantastic. Inheritance. Now, to obtain an inheritance in verse 11, do you see that? In him we have obtained an inheritance. To obtain or receive an inheritance from God means you're an heir of God. Right? If you're going to receive an inheritance from God, it means you're an heir of God. It means you're a family member of God. It actually means you're a what? A child of God. And so this section is particularly highlighting, even though the word is not even said, it's highlighting the wonder of being a child of God. So you're God's child. Now, nothing has changed over time from the ancient world to the modern world. Children receive inheritances. In the ancient world, a child or children received an inheritance. In the modern world, a child receives an inheritance. I mean, my parents who are here right now, sitting right here, right, if if they do this, it would absolutely be astounding, right? Now, Pete and I would have an uproar. But if Pete and I do not receive our inheritance from them, but let's say they give it to Sally, who hands out the food samples at HEB, who my dad loves, who's always begging for free food from her, and she's always trash-talking him back, right? But everything, the world would be out of order. The world would not be working. The ancient world would rise in revolt if my parents do not give their sons, their children, their inheritance. Ephesians 11 through 14 is saying, listen, you're a child of God, not an orphan. This is breathtaking because this means that you are never, ever alone. You have this intimate relationship with God, a deeply intimate relationship with God, where God is relating to you as a father, which means it is incredibly intimate and it's personally active. This is not a static, you become a relationship and it's a shallow, artificial shell game that's going on. This is an active, personal, intimate connection and relationship with God himself. He loves you and he accepts you. Uh, you're, not just, you're not just given freedom to go. You're given the power of a welcome. What's the difference between like justification and forgiveness? It's really, really simple. Forgiveness is you're free to go. Acceptance, love. What's called justification is you're free to come. It is welcome. It's embracing. It is full-on intimate relationship with God himself. That means he's for you, not against you. Now, don't miss this text. Look at verse 11. It says, in him we've obtained this inheritance. <laughs> this is so good because a spiritual orphan thinks that it's in me I obtain an inheritance. 
In me, I maintain a connection with God. In me, I must do something, be something, be enough, do enough for God to actually love me. And this text is saying, no, it's in him. It's in Jesus and what he has done that you obtain an inheritance, not in you and what you do. And so right off the bat, functionally, experientially, the reason why we're spiritual orphans is that we don't read this text functionally and experientially. In him we've obtained an inheritance. We read it like this, in me we obtain an inheritance. My work, my doing, my being, my performing. This text is saying, listen, you're a child of God, not an orphan. Now, a spiritual orphan is also performance-driven. So a spiritual orphan not only feels alone, but a spiritual orphan is just on the continuum, on the treadmill of being perfect and trying to perfect themselves and trying to perform. One author says it this way, there's an inevitable human desire to justify oneself through one's performance and effort and therefore to boast in one's righteousness, race, and pedigree of accomplishments. In other words, do you remember in our confession we saw where Paul was talking about uh, do not gratify the desires of the flesh? Do you remember that? When Paul talks about the flesh, he's talking about it as a, as a sinful nature, he calls it the Edemic self. In other places, in Ephesians 4, he's going to call it the old self. We've called it the collapsed self, the false self, other ways of talking about it. When he talks about the, the desires of the flesh, what he's basically saying, and he says it in other places in his writings, is that this sinful nature performs works. It does things. It does works. And one of the major ways that Paul describes it as what he calls the mega desire, the epi-over desire of the flesh. In other words, the flesh has this mega epi-over desire for, for to be its own savior. You want to know what the heart of sin is? You want to know what the, the heart of the thing that you wrestle with as a Christian, the zombie that lives inside you, the mega epi over thriving passion and desire of this nature is to justify itself, to be its own savior. So of course, being performance-driven is like breathing for us. I mean, it's as natural and normal as not having the flu. So look at verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance. What he's about to say next is going to tell you why and how the basis and grounds that you have this inheritance. Are you ready? Because we were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is absolutely breathtaking. What Paul does is he assaults you with four synonyms. He piles synonym after synonym after synonym on top of you. He's wanting to assault you with this one central idea, and he wants you to see it and get hit from four different directions. He says predestined. He says the purpose of him works all things, the counsel of his will. When you put them all together, you get this unbelievable four synonyms thrown into this huge cocktail of ancient grace. 
this cocktail. He throws these four cinnamon ins. He just doesn't, he wants to overwhelm you. Here's one, here's another. Take another. Did you hit this one? Of God's ancient work in the world. He talks about ancient choosing, which is predestined. Whenever God thought of you, in the context of a broken, fallen world, he chose you, and then you move into this purpose of him. It literally means a delightful intent, a loving intention. So he has this loving, ancient, this ancient loving towards you that whenever he thought of you, whenever you came into the mind in the eternality of God, and he's considering the invasion of the darkness, the invasion of of the present evil age, the invasion of the world that we have it now, and when he thought of that, when it, it was all there, he, he loved you anciently. Then you got ancient working. It says works all things because, man, what happened in the ancient starts now being worked itself out in human history, and it starts working itself out, and when you become around, when you get born, it starts working into your life, and all this ancient movement is coming towards you and works all things. According to what? Well, you got this counsel of his will, this ancient plan in God. And so what all these words are basically saying is that God's not reacting to you. He's not caught off guard by you. He doesn't put plan B in light of what you've done and how you've messed up your life and messed up the world. There are no countermeasures like, oh, there's no God wringing his hands like, oh, man. No, this is an ancient grace coming from the heart of God coming for you. This means a child of God lives a grace-driven life, not a performance-driven life. A performance-driven life is over. You no longer need to be enough. You no longer need to do enough. You no longer need to be perfect. You know why? Because Jesus is your inheritance. And that means he has all the perfection you'll ever need. He has all the performance you'll ever need. He has all the approval you'll ever need. He has all the wonders of acceptance you'll ever need. He gives you all, let's put it this way. What do you long for? Do you long for control in your life? And you and I struggle for control in our life. And Jesus comes along, the gospel comes along as a child of God and says, listen, in me, I'm your inheritance. You have all the control you need. You don't need to grasp for things like that. I'm the king. I have all the control you'll ever need. I have all the safety you'll ever need. I have all the security you'll ever need. I have all the help that you'll ever need. I have all the forgiveness you'll ever need. I have all the righteousness you'll ever need. I have all the approval you'll ever need. Do you want attention? Do you want to be liked? Do you want to be loved? He's saying, I have all that you'll ever need. I am your inheritance. You know what this does is this can change your emotional life just like that. You can trade in one emotional life. You can trade in the emotional life of an orphan for the emotional life of a child. You can trade in your exhaustion and trade in your anxiety and trade in your discouragement for rest of a child, for the peace of a child, for the hope 
of a child. And that's what happens in verse 12, does it not? I mean, it comes down to the end. Watch what happens in the end of verse 11. The little translation goes like this, so that we who hope beforehand. He's talking about those who, it's talking about the inheritance has a, a present reality and it has a future reality. In other words, the new age has a present reality and then has a future reality. And he's talking about everyone that lives in this time in which you're hoping before the final end. Hoping a new emotional state of rest and peace and energizing hope as a child of God. Regardless of circumstance, regardless of how you feel, regardless of whether you feel loved or not, this is true, the text is saying. I am a child of God, not an orphan. What's the other thing we looked at? A spiritual orphan has a hard heart. Remember, they're rebellious. They're, they don't listen well. They fear being controlled. They're critical people. Well, what can soften a hard heart? You ever thought about that? What softens a hard heart? You ever had a hard heart? Oh, boy, I've had a hard heart. I get, you know, my heart gets hard. I can always tell. It's all kind of like what happened this week, didn't it, honey? It's like, dig into myself. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freaking endure this thing. It's like, buckle down. I'm right. What's your hard heart look like? Find inheritance again in verse 11 and verse 14. So when did a child in the ancient world receive their inheritance? Now, Think about it this way. When does a child in the modern world attain their inheritance? What's the answer of both worlds? Upon the death of the last parent. <laughs> Woven into the wonder of this text is God must die for you to get your inheritance. God dies to give you an inheritance. You know what this means? Because we're not neutral inheritors. We're going to find out in chapter 2 that we're dead inheritors. We're actually so wrapped up into ourselves that all we do is live in this inverted world of self, this kingdom of self. That's what we're going to find out in chapter 2. And we're living in this kingdom of self, completely wanting to be our own Savior, completely wanting to be our own Lord. And God loves you there. How, do you, how, do you ch how does your meanness change? How does meanness, when you're, you're a mean person, how does your meanness change? You know how meanness changed? When you realize God loves you in your meanness, you change. Well, what if you're self-righteous and you're critical and you're, complaining and you're divisive, how's that going to change? When you realize God loves you in your criticalness and loves you in your divisiveness and loves you in your self-righteousness, then you start changing. Your heart starts changing. Well, what about if you're a jerk? Or what about if you're control? When you realize that God loves you when you're a jerk, when you're controlling, you start changing. You start becoming a child of God functionally. 
and not functionally living like you're not, like you're an orphan. I am a child of God, this text is saying, not an orphan. Lastly, a spiritual orphan has little faith, but lots of fears, right? Loads of fears. I mean, look at verse 13 and 14. In him also you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it. Full possession of our inheritance. Okay, after I passed my ordination exam, this is a long time ago. My or, after I passed these ordination exams to be called what is called a minister. And then Nancy and I had to pass a church planning boot camp assessment center kind of thing. We passed that. And then after we finally come here to plan a church, she gives me my book seal. I love my book seal. I'm about ready to begin a library. About, I'm a, a geek. I love books. I, I was like, this is like, this is like the best gift ever. And it's this, it's this thing, you, it has this metal handle you squeeze, and on each side there's these two plates, these two seals, these metal plates. And you take your book, and if a book doesn't have this page, I usually throw the book out. I don't care how good the book is. It's got to have a first blank page. There can't be anything written on that first page. I don't want table of contents. If they go right to the table of contents, I write the editor. I write who I, where's the blank page? Because I need that blank page because that blank page is where I stick it into my seal and I squeeze it. <laughs> and then embedded on that very first page, it says, from the library of the Reverend Jeffrey C. Hatton. Embedded into the very book, embedded into the very fiber of the paper, it means this is my book. <laughs> and so Jesus, right, so God, what he ends up doing is he ends up sealing you with his spirit. Seals you with his spirit. He takes his son and he takes you and by the Spirit, He unites you to Jesus and seals you so that you're one. In other places in Paul, it's called being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So being sealed with the Holy Spirit and being baptized with the Holy Spirit are the same thing. Now in Ephesians 5, he's going to talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other reality. But what's so fascinating, being filled with the Holy Spirit is an imperative. It's a command. We're going to get those. But when you're sealed and you're baptized, it is never something we do. It is something only God does because what he is doing is he is sealing his very self into you by his Spirit. He's saying, this is my daughter. This is my son. And who's he saying this to? Probably primarily he needs to say it to you because we're the first ones to forget it. But then in the context of this verse, a couple verses before, which we ended last week in verse 10, there are these creatures and there's these things called things on, things on earth and things in heaven, whatever that means, and we're going to find more about those as we go through Ephesians. But evidently there's a whole other world in the invisible world in the world, under the world, whatever that is. And there are all these creatures in the invisible world. And before all the creatures in the invisible world and all the creatures and whatever these creatures are in the earthly world, God is saying, this is my child. This is my son. This is my daughter. Hands off. There with me. 
This means you finally belong. This means you're finally wanted. This means you're finally home. This means you're finally yourself. Who are you? I am a child of God, not an orphan.